I invite you to make your way to Luke chapter 1. We're going to consider today the first four verses of this gospel. As I introduce and begin a new series of messages in the gospel of Luke, and titled, Jesus Came to Seek and to Save. Luke's name, as the author, is not listed in the Gospel of Luke or in the book of Acts. But since the early days of the church, it has been believed that Luke wrote both of them. Each are addressed to someone named Theophilus, whom we don't know a lot about. Evidently, probably a Roman who was an official or in some position of authority, who had either trusted in Jesus as his Savior and was in need of being grounded and in need of growing in his faith, or he was still considering uh, what it meant to follow Jesus. Luke applies the reference most excellent to him, so it's thought that he was a person of rank, uh, maybe a Roman officer, as I mentioned. Luke is significant in the New Testament because it's the longest book in all of the New Testament. And Luke, collectively, between Luke and Acts, wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else, including the Apostle Paul, in terms of volume of writing. Luke was a Gentile. He was not of the nation of Israel, but he had come to follow Jesus and was writing about what he knew about him. He was also not uh, an apostle, which means he was not an eyewitness to the events of Jesus, to the story of Jesus. He's referenced three times by name in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 4, Philemon 24, and then 2 Timothy chapter 4. He was a physician, a beloved medical doctor. He was a man who was well-educated. He was cultured, and that certainly comes across in his writings. His writing style is distinctively Greek. In fact, Luke wrote with a rich vocabulary. And in the Gospel of Luke, there are 250 words that only appear in the New Testament in Luke's writing. In Acts, there are 61 words that are only used in the book of Acts. So collectively, there are over 300 words that are used by Luke alone in this rich style of vocabulary and writing that he employed. We don't know Luke's conversion testimony either, but he had come to faith and maturity, and I think he became to maturity in his faith even before he came alongside the Apostle Paul to serve with him. He would prove himself to be a very faithful co-laborer in the ministry, being with Paul all the way up to the time of his arrest and then ultimately his imprisonment and his execution. We would refer to Luke as one of the synoptic gospels, meaning that along with Matthew and Mark, they provide for us similar snapshots of the life and the ministry of Jesus, which are complementary toward one another and help us have a fuller picture. They're not full biographies in that sense, but they do give us a good focus on who Jesus is and what he did and what we're to expect in the things to come. Uh, Luke is also important because he sort of bookends the life of Jesus. He tells us more about the birth of Jesus and the early life of Jesus than anybody else with more detail. He also tells us more about the ascension of Jesus and he connects us to the mission of the church as he segues into the book of Acts and really lays out what the early mission of the church looked like, which gives us principles to follow in our own missiological understanding of why the church even exists and 
who we're to be as disciples of Jesus. And then Luke's gospel is for all nations. The announcement of the birth of Jesus from the beginning, recorded by the angels telling the shepherds that the news of salvation of the Savior had come for all people. Meaning that this gospel that was to be proclaimed was for every person on the face of the planet. Later on, he indicates that God's salvation is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Luke uses the word sinners more than anybody else does in their writings. So certainly this is a message that is to people like us. People who need hope in a dark age. People who need light to illuminate our path and to show us the way that we are to follow Jesus as his disciples. And Luke refers over and again to Jesus as the Savior. So let me give you just an outline, if I can, of this book that will provide some framework. If you can't write fast enough, you can go back and listen later on. But I think it'll help us understand, really, the direction that Luke takes with his writing. He begins, first of all, with the birth of Jesus and the whole narrative surrounding the birth of Jesus in chapters 1 to 3. When we come to chapter 4, he's talking about the temptation of Jesus, the testing of Jesus, and how he was being prepared to minister publicly and do what God called him to do. Then the scene shifts to the north, where Jesus' ministry would be in the region of the Galilee. And if you take chapters 5 to 9, they focus on the ministry of Jesus in the region of the Galilee. And then the ministry of Jesus again takes a turn from chapters 10 through 18 as he begins to make his way toward Jerusalem and what would happen in Jerusalem. And then the ministry of Jesus in Jericho and the beginnings of it in Jerusalem itself are found in chapters 19 through uh, 21. And then we come to the betrayal and the trial and the death of Jesus in chapters 22 and 23. And then finally, at the end of the book, we have both the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus when we come to chapter 24. But let me give you another summary outline that I think will even pull it in closer to help you understand the time frame of what Luke was dealing with. Luke 1 and 2 represent about 30 years of the life of Jesus. 30 years. Luke 3 through the first part of 19 represent about three years of the life in the ministry of Jesus. And then when we come to chapter 19 through the end of chapter 24, it represents about one week of the life of Jesus. So we have the beginning, which is the foundation. That's those first few chapters. We have this broad swath of scripture in the middle that now is beyond the first 30 years. And now we're dealing with a concentrated period of time in the life of Jesus. It's only about three years. And then he narrows in uh, even more as he comes down to the last chapter of actually the last week of Jesus' life as he makes his way to the cross and is ultimately crucified and raised from the dead. Now, if you want a key verse for this entire study, it's the theme that I've set forth today. And it comes from Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 is the thread that runs through the entirety of this gospel around which everything else revolves and helps us understand the truth of the gospel. This designation of Jesus as the Son of Man 
appears 88 times in the New Testament. Almost every single time, it is used by Jesus himself as a self-description. In fact, it's his favorite term related to himself, his favorite way to refer to himself. So we ought to sit up and take notice if our Lord himself uses a term over and over to identify himself. It certainly should cause us to think, well, what does he mean when he refers to himself as the Son of Man? Well, there's two aspects of it. The first is that it is a messianic designation, that he has come as God, as the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah into the world. It is a messianic title. It has its roots back in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14. Listen to what the scripture says. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. By Jesus using the Son of Man to refer to himself, he is saying, I am the Messiah, I am God who has come. The Son of Man is also a title of humanity. When we look, for example, at the prophet Ezekiel, he's referred to repeatedly as the Son of Man, simply referring to the fact that he was a human being who was serving God. So a son of man is, in fact, a man. And while the Messiah came as God, Jesus, fully God, into this world, he also, in what is one of the great mysteries of all of eternity, came as fully man. It was Jesus manifesting himself as God in the flesh, 100% God and 100% man in the world as the Savior of the world. John wrote in 1 John 4 and verse 2, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. By Jesus' use of Son of Man, he was referring to himself as a man. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The main theme of this gospel, even more narrowly stated, is the theme of salvation. That's what Jesus came to do. Luke's favorite things to say in reference to the work of Jesus are preach the gospel and salvation. To preach the gospel sums up what Jesus did in his teaching and healing and his acts of compassion. They were all a proclamation of the good news that God had come into the world. And if salvation is for the lost, then salvation is for all people. It's for men and women and boys and girls and notorious sinners. It's for everybody who will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. These first four verses that we're going to look at here in just a moment serve as what we would call a prologue to Luke's gospel. It was common in ancient Greek writings for them to include a prologue. It was a short introduction of sorts that was to turn the attention of the reader. Whatever the subject was that they were reading, it would turn the attention of the reader into what they were saying. And Luke provides for us a prologue into his gospel so that he puts us on notice about the subject that he's about to communicate. 
It's also interesting to note that in the original language, we don't have these verse uh, separators where there's a flow of thought that is interrupted between the verses. In fact, these first four verses are one continual long sentence that is communicated as the prologue of the gospel. So we begin reading in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the Word handed them down to us. It also uh, seemed good to me, since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. You gave Luke more space in the New Testament than anybody else with a most significant message that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. I pray as we begin in this study that our hearts would be renewed, that as believers and followers of Christ, that we would be strengthened in our faith and confident in what we believe. I pray if there are some today, even under the sound of my voice, who have not yet come to follow Jesus, they're not yet disciples of King Jesus, that they would be even before this day is over, and they'd not delay in following the one of whom Luke wrote. Help us now, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, give us understanding, And help us to apply these truths to our lives. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here's a thought that I want to launch into this series with that really lays the groundwork, I think, of where we're going. The Christian faith is founded on truth and is to be lived by truth. Let me say that again. The Christian faith is founded on truth and it is to be lived by truth truth. It is essential that we understand where truth comes from, how we have received it, and whether or not we can, in fact, rely on it. So first, the truth has been fulfilled. The truth has been fulfilled. Verse 1, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Luke was aware at this point that others had written about the life of Jesus that much had been said about the life of Jesus. I think there are two aspects of this. Certainly, there were, was oral history that had been passed down by the people who had been in the presence of the Lord, and they had heard him speak, and they had seen him minister, and they knew about his power, and they were captured by his uniqueness. So there was certainly that oral tradition that had been passed down. But then there was very much a written word that had already been delivered. Perhaps he's referring to Matthew and Mark, which would have likely already have been written at this point. But I think he's speaking to the collective testimony of truth that had been fulfilled and had been delivered. For these people to undertake this possibility was to literally take in hand or to make an attempt to do something that was difficult Uh, from the outset, and understand that Luke did not write here to correct the attempts of other people in recording 
the story and the life and the ministry of Jesus. Some have said that, that the gospels are not reliable, and that because the gospels are not reliable, therefore we have to take bits and pieces of each one to be able to get a complete picture. That's not true at all because it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in just a moment. The point is, Luke is building on what's already been communicated faithfully from God, by God, to people who needed to know God. And it was a difficult undertaking. To compile is to arrange and to put into order. Luke undertook an effort to compile a narrative about the events that had been fulfilled and had been accomplished. The greatest challenge that we face in the age that we live in to our faith is the question of whether or not we can believe that God has communicated and if God has communicated that God has really said It's an attack on the word of God. This is the attack that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? And it's the same question that's being asked today in our society, in our culture, in the political realm, in classrooms, in media. Ultimately, it's a contrast between the fact that God has said, and then man wants to set his own path, his own direction, and his own agenda. If God has really said, then that sets the tone for who we are, how we're to live, and who we're supposed to be following. Over and over again, the issue comes up. Is the Bible true, and can the Bible be trusted? We believe in the importance of an inspired, inerrant, and infallible Bible. In fact, we would say that it is of utmost importance. Peter addressed the issue in his epistles in 2 Peter chapter 1, in a passage that we considered not very long ago as a church, He indicated the way that we can protect ourselves from heresy. Peter was writing to uh, refute people who were promoting false teaching. They were outright denying the reality of the second coming of Jesus. They were saying that the Bible was full of fables and myths and could not be trusted. And Peter was writing to a people who had already been established in the truth. He wanted them to be confident about what they had been established in. He wanted to remind them of what they knew, and he wanted to give them good doctrine while he was at it so they could anchor their lives down in it. And then as a practical outflow of that, he wanted to stir up love and good works. Peter had preached that Jesus would return in power. He was an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Jesus, and he saw his majestic glory. Peter and the other two who were with him saw the, what the Old Testament prophets had predicted about the Messianic kingdom, and it made their word more sure so that he would write in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you some simple commentary on that. People didn't just make the Bible up on their own. They didn't just arbitrarily come up with the Bible. This is God's word communicated through people who were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And the message of God to man was recorded with accuracy because it came to us by way of divine origin. 
Peter outright rejected the philosophies and the teachings of his day. He solidly anchored himself down in the revealed truth that he himself had witnessed. And he wanted his readers to follow that as well. So to say that we as a people, we as a church, we as a gathered body of believers in this place who have covenanted together to serve the Lord as the local body of Christ, to say that we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible is to say a lot. And what it means essentially is that when we say we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, that means that God has spoken to us in words. God has communicated through his word to us. And his word is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. To say that it is plenary means complete or full. It relates to every word, every word form, every word placement in the original manuscripts that were communicated. Inspiration means that it's been supernaturally given. It's been God-breathed. It indicates that the words, all of them, have been breathed out to us by God in that God supernaturally guided the authors of the Bible to write down exactly what he wanted to be written. So verbal plenary inspiration means that every word in the Bible has been given to us by God. That's the verbal part. Everything in the Bible is authoritative. That's the plenary part. And every word is divinely directed. That is the inspired part. Luke speaks of the events that were fulfilled among them. Did you know that Jesus is the embodiment of fulfilled prophecy? When the Bible was written, 27% of the Bible, when they were writing it down in real time, had not yet taken place. More than a fourth, almost a third of the Bible, when they wrote it down, led by the Holy Spirit to do so, had not yet taken place. There were 1,817 prophecies written down in real time by those authors. Prophecy has been described as pre-written history, meaning that, yes, it's in the future. Yes, it's foretelling the things that have not yet come. Yes, it's in anticipation, but you can mark it down as good as if it has already happened because God said it. And remember, God is outside of time. He's not bound by the same things that we're bound by. He's not bound by the past. He's not limited by the present. He's not guarded from the future. God is eternal and God is timeless. And he speaks of these events that have been fulfilled. God alone knows the futures and he foretold the coming of Messiah. So let me say it another way. The gospel of Luke doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It begins before the birth of Jesus. It doesn't just begin with the birth of John the Baptist. It points us back to the Old Testament and the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament, which are accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus. And so the gospel of Luke begins with the Old Testament. It begins with the Hebrew Bible. It all begins with the prophecies that God had made long ago, that Jesus would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem that his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us, that he would be called out of Egypt and he would be preceded by a forerunner who was like Elijah, 
That he would be anointed with the Holy Spirit and he would enter into his public ministry in Galilee. That our Lord would live in poverty and meekness and compassion. And that the life of Jesus would be without deceit and full of zeal, preaching and working miracles. That he would be rejected by his own, betrayed by a friend, forsaken by his disciples. That Jesus would be spat upon and beaten and nailed to a cross. That he would be forsaken by God and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he would be mocked while they cast lots for his clothes and that he would die and be raised from the dead and ascend back to the right hand of God the Father. All of it was foretold before it ever happened. And Luke's saying, I'm writing about what has been fulfilled. I want you to understand all of this and much more that was prophesied and that came to reality before Jesus ever entered the world and then was worked out through his life and his ministry. Luke set out to write about what was fulfilled in Jesus. Second, the truth has been passed down. Verse 2 says, Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. Whether it was oral tradition or the written word, which is authoritative. The truths that were communicated were based on the testimony of people who were there. This is a technique that Paul uses in that great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's outlining all of the people who had been witnesses of the risen Lord. And he said that he himself out of due time had seen the risen Lord. This was all intended to be a testimony of eyewitnesses who experienced the Lord, who had seen with their own eyes. A servant is one who's in service to another, who submits himself uh, to to the will of another. In classic language, it referred to a sailor. It was also a word that was used of medical assistance or attendance. So Luke is undoubtedly referring to the apostles who were with Jesus from the outset, They had seen the sacred events of the life of Jesus with their own eyes. They went on to be preachers of the good news of the kingdom. They were eyewitnesses and servants of the word who passed down the truth. And the emphasis is on the credibility of the sources. And the credibility of the sources is that they saw these things and they experienced them firsthand. John the Apostle would do the same later on in his first epistle. In 1 John chapter 1, when he wrote... He wanted to give confidence about the eyewitness experiences. He was writing to Christians in Asia Minor who were living in most challenging and uncertain and changing times. And here's what he wrote. First John chapter one, beginning in verse one. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our own eyes, what we've observed, what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That word was revealed and we've seen it and we testify and we declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us as we have seen and heard and we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John essentially says, I knew Jesus. I was in his presence I saw him, I I laid my own eyes on him. I heard him with my own ears as he talked to us along the way and as he preached the parables and as he ministered to people and as he encouraged them. I I heard these words with, with my own ears. 
I touched him with my own hands. He was real and present in our midst. As he heard the Lord speak and he saw the Lord and he touched the Lord with his own hands. It's the same word that Jesus used in Luke chapter 24 and verse 39. Touch me and see for a spirit who does not have flesh and bones, uh, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have in terms of his resurrected body. These were people who were reliable sources and they passed the truth down so that it would be recorded, guided by the Holy Spirit, and then faithfully communicated all the way to us so that we could know about Jesus. In Irenaeus' work, one of the church fathers, Against All Heresies, written probably about 180 A.D., there's a passage, an extra-biblical example, if you will, where Irenaeus recounted the story of sitting in a classroom in the city of Smyrna in Asia Minor. He said he was being taught by a man that he identified only as an elder. The elder was teaching Irenaeus and the others about Christian theology, and he said at one point in the lecture, the elder paused, and he said in this very room, John the Apostle taught us Christian theology. Just a reminder to us that we don't stand alone. It's not as though we have appeared in the 21st century with our own version of faith and our own version of the realities of life and death and eternity. We stand on the foundation of the word of God that has been passed down to us as truth We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and told these same stories and preached these same messages and instilled this same confidence so that even today the church of the living Christ is growing all across the globe. Even today there will be thousands of people who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved because they believe that this message is true and they believe that this message has been faithfully passed down. And Luke says to us in his gospel, I'm telling you about something that people who are alive now, as he was writing, who saw with their own eyes, who testified with their own words, so it would be preserved and proclaimed for generations to come. He said, I'm writing to you what has been passed down to me. Luke set out to write about the truth that was passed down. Third, the truth has been carefully investigated. The truth has been carefully investigated. Verse three, it also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence. Understand Luke was a doctor who was cultured and who was highly educated. But Luke, in this sense, was very much a historian who was guided by the Holy Spirit. He carefully researched both the oral and the written accounts to verify everything before he wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We can say that Luke provided a conscientious and precise account of events in sequence. And it is executed in accordance with all of the requirements of the historical genre of literature. 
He's done a most faithful job of writing to us on the basis of investigation. His research was complete. It was thorough. It was comprehensive. It was in order of the record of truth. He followed the trail of evidence bit by bit. He used the perfect tense when he wrote, indicating that when his investigation was over and his findings were preserved in the gospel, it was in fact a true word. You see, one of the things today that people are often seeking is a new revelation and a new word and a new leading and a new direction. And Luke says, I'm telling you how it is. And what you need to know is how it is. What you need to know is what is true. And if you come up with something that is new, it's going to be wrong. Because God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Are there variable applications to the word in our circumstances of life? Yes. But never forget that the word is unchanging. The word is our foundation. The word is what we build on. And that has to be the testimony of the church. So you be very wary of people who speak in terms of new revelation and their own experiences and their own emotions. And you continually come back to the word that God has spoken. And Luke indicated his research was thorough. He made thorough inquiries his research, no doubt, involved a number of investigative techniques. And his research was comprehensive because he says that he traced the course of all things from the first. He's not just jumping in and inserting himself here in a story. He said, I started with the first. I, I want to begin at the right place here so that I can research and record more than any other writer did about the foundational events of Christianity. And God used him to do that. And I think that's why it's so thorough as it is, and that's why it takes up so much space in the New Testament. The Greek scholar A.T. Robertson wrote, the idea of Luke seems to be that having decided to write another and a fuller narrative than those in existence, he first made an investigation of all the available materials that he could lay his hands on. Many of you are familiar with uh, the ministry of Ravi Zacharias and the organization that works around the world in terms of apologetics. And I read a piece on the Zacharias Trust uh, in preparation for this message entitled, Why Trust the Bible? And the idea was that uh, when we are approaching the Bible from a historical perspective, we can approach the Bible much like we would any other ancient work. Yes, it's in its own category. Yes, it stands alone. But at the same time, there are some tests that a historian can utilize to demonstrate the veracity or the truthfulness of any ancient document. And these would apply to the Bible as well. First would be the bibliographic test, meaning that when we look at the ancient manuscripts and we ask if the Bible we have today is accurate to the original, the answer is yes, because there are thousands upon thousands of ancient manuscripts of the Bible in existence. So the text that we have today is, in fact, accurate. Second, there's also the internal test uh, that means we can determine whether the document we have before us came from reliable sources. In this case, it was primarily from the eyewitnesses, and then it's corroborated by the Holy Spirit inspiring it. But we have multiple eyewitnesses, and then there are others who built upon the testimony of those multiple eyewitnesses, so it passes the internal test. 
Then the third test that can be applied is the external test. Time and time again, archaeology has confirmed the writers of the Bible knew what they were talking about. Not only archaeology, but secular historians, even who were contemporaries of people like Luke and then coming along shortly after, men like the Jewish historian Josephus, who confirmed much of what was written in the Bible. Miller Burroughs, a former archaeology professor at Yale University, wrote, On the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. Luke indicates his aim is to verify the events. So he doesn't want to just tell a story. He wants to tell an accurate story. You see, a story on its own is not enough. Because if it's just a story, if it's just a faith narrative, if it's just a faith epic, but we don't know whether we can believe it or not, then how can we know if it's any different from any other writing that is given from a religious perspective? How can we know that the Bible stands alone? How can we know that God's truth has been delivered to us accurately? Luke says, you can know in part because I have carefully investigated it. And this story traces the course of all things accurately. Luke was concerned with the precise care of the facts. For instance, he relates the beginning of John's preaching with no less than six political figures and their respective jurisdictions in Luke chapter 3. His accurate reporting is also illustrated in the book of Acts where he doesn't just tell this generalized story. He mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and no less than nine Mediterranean islands. So when Luke spoke of the ancient world, he spoke accurately. When Luke used political terminology, he did it with with precision. When he communicated medical insights, they were appropriate. And his skill empowered him to give an even more vivid picture. And Luke's work is a true story that is rooted in the facts of verifiable history. I give you this and we're going to close. The Gospel of Luke was written, verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Now, obviously, contextually, he's speaking to Theophilus directly. He's got a broader message for for all of the church. But he's saying to you, who have gathered on this first Sunday in November of 2019 at Cross Lanes Baptist Church, sitting here listening to a message, he's saying to you, I have written this to you. The Holy Spirit has delivered this to you so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed and that you can have confidence in your faith. You know, many people present the Christian faith as a blind leap in the dark, as a way of living that is for the weak and the ignorant, We're just simply not educated well enough as a reason that we would believe such a thing. It's an arbitrary leap into the dark that has no relationship to reason or evidence or knowledge. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
I share with you two contrasting statements, and then we'll settle in for the close. The first is from a man that is an atheist who is known as one of the new atheists, one of the more radical, outspoken, aggressive atheists by the name of Sam Harris. He wrote, faith is generally nothing more than the permission of religious people uh, giving one another the permission to believe things strongly without evidence. That's his position. The flip side of that is a man by the name of John Lennox. John Lennox is a Christian apologist. I would recommend his writings. One book that he wrote is God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God. He gives a, an argument in there for intelligent design, and it's philosophical, but it's very much biblical. And Lennox is a professor of philosophy and mathematics at Oxford University. And here's what he said. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's the exact opposite. It is a commitment based on evidence. It is irrational to reduce all faith to blind faith and then to subject it to ridicule. That provides a very anti-intellectual and convenient way of avoiding an intelligent discussion. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. When we come and follow him, we are following the embodiment of prophecy, the embodiment of truth, but most importantly, we are following the Messiah, the Son of Man, who is the one and only Son of God. And he can be trusted. His word can be trusted. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment. Pastor Eric's going to come and sing a closing song with us. I return to what was part of my opening challenge as we launch into the Gospel of Luke together. That if you are a follower of Jesus and you call yourself a disciple of his, that as we work our way through this great text, your faith would be undergirded, it would be strengthened, and your confidence would grow in the Lord, and even more importantly, your love for him would deepen. I hope that would be each one of our prayers. But the other part of that is that I know in a group even this size this morning that there's some here who have not yet believed. You'd have to say that if you were to step out tonight into eternity, it would be an eternity apart from God. If God's word is true, and you have to repent and believe and come to Jesus by faith, you've not yet taken that step, and you know that you don't know him. The challenge for you is to take that step of faith today. Friend, it's not a blind leap in the dark. You're not stepping off of the precipice of the unknown. You're stepping into the light that God has shown into this world through his son, Jesus. He invites you to come and follow him. We invite you to come and follow him. Father, thank you for this message, for this word that has been confirmed among us. I pray for this church. There are attacks on this church and others just like us constantly as to whether or not we truly believe what we say we believe. Many times those attacks are subtle and they come from within by people or teachings that promote something that is contrary to your word. 
God, collectively, we believe your word. We anchor our lives and we anchor this church down in it. Thank you for those that have gone before us on whose shoulders we stand. Not just the great defenders of the faith and the people that we could point to in history, but the humble men and women who have gone through this church, many who are now in your presence, who have stood again and again from this pulpit and in classrooms and teaching children and on mission around the world and have said, this is what God has said, and we believe it. So help us to carry on in that great tradition and that others who follow us would be beneficiaries of it. We love you, Lord. We give this time of close over to you as there are spiritual decisions that need to be made. I pray that people would come, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.